Oh, Father, we uh, are so grateful that we get to be in your house today, in your church, and to be able to reflect on your vision for what ministry is supposed to be. It's a good foundational reminder to know what your heart is, Lord, for the church in general, and to even discover what your heart is for our church. And so, Lord, today as we cover some fairly foundational things, some things that are sort of at the the bedrock of what it means for the church to be the church and for College Park to be a church that honors you, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. I pray, God, that we would fall in love in a new way with your word today, that we would have a burning desire to know it, to read it, to study it, to love it. And, Lord, that you would help us as a church to fulfill the mission that you've called us to in our city. There is much more to do in this city. And we we do not want to waste the stewardship opportunity that you give us to bring your light and your grace to Indianapolis. So, God, give us understanding today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So i got a question for you, whether you're in this room or in worship too. Do you know what these... Four letters mean? W, W, J, D. What do they mean? What would Jesus do? Right. Very good. I don't know if you remember or not, but in the 1990s, these four little letters just kind of took off. What would Jesus do? It became um, kind of culturally normal for Christians to buy one of these, a bracelet, and then wear it. WWJD, and that, that then spread to all sorts of kind of crazy things like what would Jesus do, bumper stickers, and what would Jesus do, book bags, and there's even a board game, you can buy it on Amazon.com called What Would Jesus Do, it's a board game. But do you know where all of this started, this WWJD phenomenon? Believe it or not, it actually started in Holland, Michigan. Yeah. When I moved there in uh, the early 90s, I remember hearing about it, there was this uh, youth group leader um, uh, at a local church, about 35 um, students that she was um, talking with about this book by Sheldon called In His Steps. And she wanted to try and get it into the minds and hearts of some teenagers that they needed to see life through this lens of what would Jesus do. And so she came up with the idea of putting these uh, four um, letters on a wristband and then have students buy them and and put them on their wrist, and then everywhere they'd go, they'd continually think, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And that, that actually is a really important question, isn't it? Whether it's a wristband or a board game or a bumper sticker or, or whatever, the fact of the matter is, what would Jesus do is a really critical question to ask, not only for us personally, but here's another way to look at it. What would Jesus do if he lived in Carmel, Indiana? The question is not only what would Jesus do personally, but... How does the church deal with that question of what would Jesus do in terms of his priorities here at our own church? What would Jesus do in terms of his priorities in our city? How would he meet the needs of people? How would he serve? What would be the priorities that that Jesus were to have if he were leading this church? And the reason that that's a really important question is because, after all, this is not our church. This is his church. Remember, um, he is the head of the body, his church. It's his body. The church is his bride. And as well, he is described as the great shepherd. So the question, what would Jesus do, is not just a theoretical question or a question we have to answer individually. It's an important question that we need to think through as a church. Because the problem is, there are all sorts of things that a church can do. The opportunities for us to do things are limitless, but not everything that we could do is something that we should do. 
See, it's really important to be sure that we get our priorities straight. There are things that we have to say no to because there are things that are more important and critical to what God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. As a friend of mine says, the power of no is in a stronger yes. So the question is, what is the yes that Jesus wants us to do? Well, our text this morning is really helpful in that regard. It's it's an important bridge between two major sections in Matthew. We've just wrapped up kind of a section of uh, Jesus' work His first ten miracles that Matthew records, that came after a section about his words. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, kind of that Get Real series, and we're in the middle of what does it mean to follow Jesus. We've seen his his works, and and now we're going to look at his mission. So following Jesus involves works and mission, and chapter 10 is going to be a chapter that describes the flavor, the tone of how his disciples are to serve. And between this mission section and his work section, we get this wonderful introduction to the priorities that Jesus gives his disciples. In effect, what we get here is Jesus's vision for ministry. So there's four things this morning, and these aren't new They serve really as the foundation or the bedrock of what it means for the church to be the church, but these are really important, and it's also important because we have so many new people that have come in the last 18 months that I want you to really understand what we're about as a church. You need to understand what our core commitments are and where we're going and what things we are absolutely committed to to be sure that this is a good fit for you and your family. And so we're going to spend some time today talking about some pretty basic things, but they're really important. So four key commitments that relate to how Jesus views ministry. The first commitment is this. The commitment is to the Word of God. Jesus has just finished ten miracles, and Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, tells us that he then went throughout all the cities and villages. So what's happening here is that Jesus is expanding his ministry. He's broadening his exposure. He's traveling from town to town, city to city, becomes more of an itinerant teacher and an itinerant preacher. He travels to those cities, verse 35 tells us, for a particular purpose. It says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So there you see his twofold role. He's involved in teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, when he teaches in a synagogue, what does that look like? I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of a synagogue as far as a building, but you may not really know all of what went on there. A synagogue was a group of of Jewish people who gathered in a specific place to, to worship the one true God when they couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. So uh, after the exile, after the the diaspora happened, um, Israel began gathering in these synagogues, even while they were in in Babylon, to be sure that they didn't lose their their cultural and religious identity. And every synagogue service um, had a particular order that was involved in the worship on the Sabbath day. It included the the recitation of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the text that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And it goes through statements then about how parents are to take care of their their children and and raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It it then included prayer and readings from the law and the prophets. And then, as a part of the synagogue experience, there was always a discourse or a sermon. But what's interesting is that any Jewish man was considered qualified to be able um, to get up and to share a sermon, to share the discourse. 
And what's interesting is that in Luke chapter 4, this is exactly what happened when Jesus went to the city of Nazareth after he read in the prophet Isaiah when it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and Jesus said, Today this, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he began to give a discourse on that text. And what's amazing about that particular story, read it sometime this afternoon in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. I read it this morning just to refresh my memory again. Is that Jesus began to preach this sermon. And the first part of the sermon, the people were like, Wow, who is this guy with authority? And by the end of the sermon, they were running him out and they wanted to kill him. <laughs> That's quite a sermon, isn't it? I mean, in like 35 minutes, people went from loving you to try and push you off a cliff. So that's quite an event. So Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue, and it's in this context that on the Sabbath day, he would stand up and teach about his ethics and his ministry. So Jesus is beginning this sort of itinerant role. So his ministry involved first teaching in synagogues, but it also included something else. It says teaching, and then also notice proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus has come to bring redemption to sinful people. It is that Jesus has come to bring God's reign to the earth, and God is going to reestablish his relationship with people by eventually crucifying his own son. And Jesus is proclaiming this message to the people who would listen to him. So he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. The word proclaim is a really important word. In the Greek, it's the Greek word keruso, which means to herald. It's to be a town crier. It means to preach. It means to warn. It's sort of like when, when we were candidating here, we were staying at a um, one of the, uh, the church condo across the street, and uh, it was like one of those really weird stormy nights. And all of a sudden, while we're inside the condo, we hear that very ominous sound. You know, the the, the tornado sirens that are going around? And, uh, you know, it's 9 o'clock at night, so you know it's not a test, right? So you know it's a little bit of a problem. And then we turn on the news, and um, we found out that there's a tornado warning in a particular county. So I'm calling the elders, asking them, which county am I in? And one of the guys called and said, you're in Hamilton? No, you're, I don't know what county you are in. I'm like, alright, get to the basement, right? So, so that, that sound, that, that, that warning, that's the idea. It's a herald, it's a warning, it's a call. It, it would be like when you're trying to get your kids' attention and you tell them and they tell them and you tell them and, and then they're like about ready to walk into the street and you're like, hey! It's that idea. It's breaking news. It's the kind of tone that relates when you've got something urgent, something important, what's something that's going to happen, something that people need to know about. So it's an authoritative declaration that there's important news. So Jesus is teaching, but he's also declaring this urgent news. So when we think about a commitment in the church, what Jesus is committed to, one of the things that you need to see is the commitment to the declaration or the preaching of the word. And what you need to understand is that the position of preaching in our culture today is in a very interesting position. You know, it's not a real easy place to be as a preacher in today's culture. You know why? Let me tell you. Because never in the history of the world have you as an audience been able to access and listen to all the great preachers on the entire globe, right? Never. Puts a lot of pressure on, you know, B-class preachers was what it does. And, and so, you know, sometimes people come to church and they'll, they'll, they'll encourage me by saying, hey, did you hear Tim Keller this week? Well, I, did you hear John Piper said? Did you hear John MacArthur? And it's like, poof, poof. 
you know? It's just a body blow, yeah? What'd they say? Nothing good, I imagine, right? You know, so... So it's, it's just a really hard time of life to, to be a preacher because there's all sorts of material. And yet, here's the interesting thing. Even though there's all this material, uh, preaching is um, not on the increase. In fact, it's on the decline. In fact, there's a couple different views on preaching today. Let me give you a couple of them. The first is this, that there are some people who feel like preaching has no value. They, they view it as this. It's just your opinion anyway. In fact, you'll hear this, right? You'll, you'll say something strong to somebody or you'll, you'll tell them what the Bible says and their counter to your statement will be, look, don't preach at me, right? So there's some folks who just like has no value whatsoever, whatsoever. There's others who view preaching through this lens that preaching should never change. In other words, it doesn't matter if people are bored as long as they've heard the truth. So you may have grown up in a church like this. Pastors went on and on and on and on. And you were like, does he know what's going on? Because people are like sleeping. And it's just, in his mind, as long as I'm declaring the truth, that's all that matters. That It just shouldn't ever change. There's others who think that, that preaching is just simply communication within a community. Or that, that preaching is truth in community. And this has taken... Um, really prominence in a group called the emergent church. And that is that the group's interpretation of the truth, not the Bible itself, is really the only authority. And there's a certain element of truth in that, in that the church is the one that defines orthodoxy. But here's the problem with that. It, it, it begins to take truth and mean that truth isn't real truth unless I discover it or it becomes prevalent within the community. In other words, the authority from truth doesn't come from the scriptures, it comes from the community or the conversation. And the effect of that is that truth is not outside of yourself, no truth is within you. And the problem is the trajectory of that is eventually, if you're not careful and the community goes awry, they could define anything they want as truth. Now, the fourth perspective is where we're at as a church and where I am at, and it is that Christ-centered preaching, meaning that through the exposition of the Scriptures, believing that our authority comes from the Bible, understanding who Christ is and how He's manifest to us in the text, that we are called then to preach Christ from every text. So if you are coming here and you're just like, all you guys ever talk about is Jesus, guess what? That's right. <laughs> because that's all we got. That's it. We don't want to be word-loving people. Some people make the Bible their idol. They love to cite chapter and reference and like to impress people with their knowledge or how much they understand about various things about the books and historical backgrounds. And all of that is great and fine and good. But listen, if that doesn't lead you to Jesus, it's all a bunch of junk. At the end of the day, we have to love and cherish and preach and declare and lay before the world Christ and Him crucified. That's it. He's it. That's all, nothing else. So, to say that we preach Christ means that we take the human condition to the lens of scriptures, expose the human condition to the radical and shocking grace that God offers to us, that transforms us and empowers us to live radically different lives because we've encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
That was what Jesus told people about when he's going from synagogue to synagogue. He's preaching to them himself. He's saying, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come to release people from their captivity, to set the bondmen free. And this is fulfilled by me. So he's preaching himself. So one of the core values for us at College Park is the authority of the Word. You need to understand that our authority doesn't come from who we are. It doesn't come from a denomination. It doesn't come from the number of people. It doesn't come from our smarts or our intellect. It doesn't come from any other source. The authority for what the church is comes solely from the Scriptures. Without the authority of the Word, we don't have anything. We don't have any hope that power for life change is implicit, not within a sermon, it's implicit within the Word. And this is how we would say it. The Bible is the foundation of who we are, what we believe, and everything we do. We are committed to preaching, teaching, counseling, sharing, and living by the sufficiency of the whole counsel of God because it contains everything we need for life and godliness. Listen, everything you need to glorify God you have in your lap or on your iPhone. (laughs) Everything you have right in front of you, it's all there. Everything you need to glorify Christ, to make much of His glory in your life, you have in the sure Word of God. It goes on and it says this, Real life change is found in the Spirit-empowered Word, not our ideas, thoughts, or opinions. God's Word is written in ink, while our plans and theologies are in pencil. This is really important. Because while there is a a wealth of information that you could get online, not everyone who declares and preaches believes in the authority of the Word of God. And the question becomes this. When your life doesn't fit with what Scripture calls you to do, will you change what you do? Or will you change Scripture so you can keep your life the way you want it? The question of the authority of the word is a very practical one. It means if the Bible says something is sin, will you say it's sin? Even if your friends, your neighbors, or Congress says something otherwise. Will you declare with holy boldness, this is what the Bible says, this is the essence of what um, righteousness is and unrighteousness is not. And so you show them based upon what the scriptures say. So, the question then is, what did Jesus do? He went where the people were, he entered their world, and he boldly proclaimed the truth of God's word to them. He preached himself with authority, and that is what we are also called to do. So here's the question. Do you believe in the authority of God's word? Do you believe in its authoritative message, that it is God's word from him to you? Do you believe that the word is powerful? Do you submit to its authority? Do you point people to its teaching? Do you boldly declare it as if it were breaking news? You see, some of you are going to have a phenomenal opportunity in the next five days to boldly declare breaking news to people. You're going to be gathered at a family Thanksgiving event. Now, some of you are still stuck at the card table. I know, you're over there, and you're waiting to get to the big table, okay? You're you're waiting for Aunt Millie to die, and you know that as soon as she does, baby, you are at the big table, and you're waiting. You're not praying, but you're hoping. So, But you're at the card table, 
And conversations are going to happen. And I am telling you, you have an unprecedented opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, preach. Let the truth of what God has done in your life and who you believe Jesus is, let it go. Declare it with holy boldness. Declare it with a breaking news urgency. Wow people not with the essence of who you are, but with the power of the living Christ to transform you from the inside out. And listen, if you got people coming over to your house and you own the table and you own the room and that's your china and that's your turkey on that table and that's your stuffing, whoo, what an opportunity. Grab your Bible and have a sermon. Let's do it. <laughs> it's your opportunity to boldly declare that you believe in the authority of God's word. So as we go to Thanksgiving, would you just take some time this next week to have a heart that says, you know what, God, I'm thankful for your word. I long for adults and teenagers and some of you little children. Listen, I I want you to have a burning desire to know the Bible, not just the stories in the Bible, but to know Christ in the Bible so that you read the Bible, not just have your parents read the Bible to you or have your youth pastor or your youth leaders read or tell you about the Bible, but there would be a burning desire for you to know the Word. Jesus was committed to the Word, and we need to be as well. Kevin DeYoung, a great pastor in Lansing, Michigan, summarized so well the balance that we need in order to reach our present generation. Here's what he says. We need to grab them with passion, win them with love, hold them with holiness, challenge them with truth, and amaze them with God. That's what I want to have happen over Thanksgiving tables. But without the Word of God and without your belief in the authority of God's Word, that will never happen. It begins with a commitment to the authoritative word of God. Second key commitment is that of compassion. Notice that Jesus has a heart for people. Now, when the church gets this right, when it gets the authority of the word and compassion for people, amazing things happen. When it's all word and no compassion, people are like, no thanks. And when it's all compassion and no word, God says no thanks. What we need is a balance of both. And notice how Jesus does this in two ways. First, he not only preaches, but he heals. It says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So, he not only was preaching, but he understood that the message of the kingdom would make no sense without compassion. In fact, the real message of the kingdom is invalidated if there's no compassion. I mean, even James said this, right? He said what? Faith without works is what? Dead. You know, the world knows that. And so does the Bible. The problem is that many Christians don't know that. That people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And they've heard enough sermons. What they need is love so that the sermon has context. Or, as Randy Elkhorn says, you need to build a bridge of grace that can bear the weight of truth. That means that when you're around relatives this Thanksgiving, love on them. Ask questions. Know what's going on in their life. Don't just preach to them if you don't love them. Notice the way that Jesus saw people. Verse 36 says, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That is quite a statement. New American Standard translates it, they were distressed and downcast. 
So harassed and helpless, distressed and downcast. Those words are meant to create a picture in your mind of wounded sheep. Sheep that have a limp, that are really struggling, who are assaulted by hostile elements or, or predatory animals. It's designed to help you see that these are sheep who cannot help themselves. So when when Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees them through a lens of people who are worn out, torn up, and beat down. They're, They're devastated. They were barely making it. And Jesus sees them in that condition, and he has compassion on them. Now, some of you, when you hear those words, worn out, torn up, beat down, that's that's where you're at today. I mean, you've come because you're like, I need, I need something. I just need like a charge so I can get through the rest of this week. Or you're thinking about Thanksgiving and you already got all kinds of really bad feelings coming up. And you just get my mind set straight before I go and hang out with my weird relatives. And so you're just trying to get it all, all set so you can go. And, and I got good news for you. If you're, if you're worn out and beat up and, and torn up, that this is a good place for you to be. Because Jesus sees the crowds exactly as they are, and he has compassion on them. Like he has compassion on you today. And he's ready to pour out grace on you. Ready to pour out his mercy on you. Now, why are they in this condition? Now, Jesus tells us. Or rather, Matthew tells us. It says, he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, verse 36, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So, sheep are very vulnerable and foolish animals, and without a shepherd, they will fall prey to any number of ailments or predators. And what Jesus does here is he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. So he sees their spiritual condition and their physical condition as a symptom of the absence of substantial spiritual leadership. They are sheep without a shepherd. Now here's the problem. The problem is that there were lots of religious leaders in Jesus' time. There were all sorts of religious rulers. But Jesus sees them as harassed, downcast, depressed. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were people who, from a spiritual standpoint, they had spiritual rulers, but they didn't have spiritual shepherds. Let me show you a really interesting text. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 34. Take your Bible and go over there. Ezekiel chapter 34. Go left of Matthew. Okay? Ezekiel 34. Hopefully you uh, you bring your Bible to church. I We put our, our text up at the screen. That's to help, you know, keep us all on the same page. But, boy, I don't ever want you to stop bringing your copy of God's Word. Because you need to know where this passage is. See it in your Bible. And, as well, you need to know about people like Ezekiel. You know why? Because you're going to meet him one day in heaven. Don't be embarrassing me by coming up to him like, Yeah, I go to College Park Church, and who are you, Ezekiel? Now, didn't you write something in the Bible one time or something? So, I, just, like, stay away from me if you do that, okay? So, you'll ruin my experience in heaven. So, Ezekiel 34, and verse 4. It's an important word here. He's, he's talking specifically to shepherds about their malpractice as a shepherd. And here's what he says to them. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Here's what happens. 
somehow these spiritual rulers were no longer shepherds and the way that they led was by force and harshness. They were legalistic in how they tried to produce spiritual growth. And some of you know exactly what that's like. With force and harshness and the effect of that on your life when you were a teenager was like, if it's all force and harshness, then I'm out of here. And you ran away from the gospel. You ran away from the church. You ran away from the Bible. And one of the reasons that you ran away was not only because of the sinfulness of your heart, but because of the malpractice of spiritual leaders around you. And you might be here today in that position. You might be like so done with church because of church people. Or because of some bad situation in your past. I don't want to see what happens next though. Because this, what happens next is so beautiful. And will even help you to understand Psalm 23 in a whole new way. Look at verse 11. So we have these shepherds who are not practicing care and love for God's people the way that they should. In verse 11, God intervenes. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will search, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountain of Israel by ravines and in all inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing, and on rich pasture they shall feed the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. See what he's saying? He's saying to all those of you who had bad shepherds, you had a bad dad, a bad husband, a bad home, a bad family, a bad church, or a bad pastor. You had shepherds that didn't care for your soul or did so in a way that was abusive or difficult or hard. Here's what Jesus says, I will be your shepherd. I will be the one who will restore you. I will be the one. And if you've got me, you don't need any other shepherd. I can be your father. I'm the one who can be your your pastor. I'm the one who can lead you to safe pasture. Now, you've got to see how Psalm 23 fits into this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Do you see what's happening? It's that Jesus, as the good shepherd, says, I know you've had a bad experience. I know you've had bad church. I know you had a bad pastor. I know you had a bad dad. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm here now, and I'm going to lead you to a place where I can restore your soul. I will lead you to a place that will now give you new levels of righteousness and I will do it for my namesake. So Jesus sees the crowd as a group of people who need a new shepherd. So here's my question. First, do you know this good shepherd? Do you you know him personally? You you may have had all sorts of reasons in the world why why church is for a bunch of hypocrites or, or all these reasons why everyone's all messed up in church. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. Church is filled with messed up people. It is. But the reality is the Lord Jesus 
is the one who can restore your soul. And if you've never given your heart and life to Him, if you've never bent your knee and said, I need you to clean up my life, then today needs to be the day where you decide, you know what, I need something different, and it's the person called Jesus. The second question is this. For those of you who know Him, do you see people through the lens of compassion like Jesus does? You see, Jesus doesn't see people through a lens of frustration or disgust. He sees people as they are, but he loves them. So here's my question. Listen carefully. Do you love helpless and harassed and sinful people? When you you see hurting people, honestly, do you think you're better? Do you feel frustration or disgust? Do you feel anything at all anymore? You see, one of the casualties of ministering to sinful people or having someone in your life that's, that's just, their, their life is so disappointing is that you become accustomed to the pain. Nothing shocks you anymore. And, and, and the consequences in someone's life don't bring you to tears anymore. And some of you are going to share a meal with this kind of person in just a few days. They're a son, a daughter, a relative, a family member, and their life is a mess. And you used to feel sorry and compassion for them, and now you're just like, well, they get what they deserve. And maybe they do. But your heart ought to be, they are helpless and harassed. What they need is a shepherd who can lead them to safe pasture. You know another casualty of this? You hang around people's sin long enough, you see them like they are, and they don't change, your tendency will to, you will want to beat the sheep. You'd be like Moses, so frustrated with the people, instead of speaking to the rock, you strike the rock. And you do it with words and actions or attitudes. You do it because your kids won't change. And so instead of praying and seeking God, you begin to use sinful means to try and get them to modify their behavior. Or you try and use words or actions or attitudes that reflect a heart where you now become like the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 with force or harshness. You are determined that they will change. And yet, what you don't realize is you've now become the very kind of shepherd that Jesus would never want you to be. I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. We have to love people more than we hate where they're at. Our love for them has to eclipse where they are and love them in Jesus' name. Our third commitment is the commitment of prayer. Jesus next talks about prayer. He wants his disciples to realize that before them is this great harvest. He says what? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what is his remedy for the shortage of workers? His his, his remedy is not some new recruitment plan. He doesn't call for more vigorous or effective action. No, what does he call them to do? He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would thrust out, literally find people and push them out into his harvest. So the image here is this, uh, this vast field of golden wheat and Jesus wants to send out laborers into that field if there will only be enough laborers and people need to pray that God sends out his workers. So, the remedy for the gaps in what we are able to do with what we want to do is to pray and ask God for 
his empowerment of people to join the labor force. And listen, this is why corporate prayer at our church is so critical to our mission. This is why we do a Fresh Encounter service once a month. This is why when I candidated here, I said I, I not only want to come and preach, but I also want to come and lead in prayer because this has to be a part of the ministry of our church moving forward. Why? Because prayer is the empowerment of the church. Listen to what one commentary said. A creeping death sweeps over the mission of many churches in our time because, quite simply, prayer meetings have ceased. And beneath the death of prayer, at a deeper level, lies the death of real belief. Why do churches not pray? They don't pray because they don't believe God's going to do anything or that real power comes by Him. They're more in love with their programs, their stuff, their bulletins, their communication pieces, all of the machinery of the ministry and what they don't realize. And unless God by His Spirit blows into our stuff, it's all a bunch of nothing. And the call, therefore, is to pray or we will lose our heart and our mission. So, we need to pray that God sends out people from our midst. And do you know, over the last five years, God has sent out some pretty amazing people from our midst. Let me just give you a quick rundown. He sent Jeff and Becky Hunt to the Caspian. He sent Ross and Laura Myers to China. He's sending Jeff and Laura Henny to Laos. He's sending Jason and Megan Dodderidge to Japan and Robert and Marty De Bruin to the Middle East. That is amazing, the number of people. And you know what we ought to pray? We ought to pray more of that, Lord. More sending. Maybe even some of you in this room, that God would put it on your heart, a burning desire to say, you know what, let's go and do this and pray for the Lord of the harvest that He would cast out, send out workers into His field. He doesn't always need the most highly educated, the most highly skilled. No, Jesus says pray for workers. To pray with holy earnestness that God would thrust people into His ministry. That He would empower people and send them. So word, compassion, prayer, last one, gifts. This chapter marks a monumental moment in Jesus' ministry as he empowers his disciples and sends them out. Their ministry mirrors his. They're given power over demons. He called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So they had power over demons and they had the ability to cure. They had power over the devil and they had the power to cure the world. And this is how Jesus has always operated. He invites normal, in some cases, subpar people. That list was not a stellar list, not a who's who list. They were fishermen and tax collectors and even those that would eventually betray him. And yet God empowered those people. Jesus fills them with his spirit. And as a result of that, they're able to do phenomenal and powerful things. This is the way the church began. Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 that he has given gifts to every person who's named the name of Christ. So that means that Jesus has given every single person in this room a spiritual gift. You've been given a gift and you're supposed to use it. That gift is the spoil of war. It's what Jesus gave when he 
declared himself to be king and victor over death and sin. He gave gifts to men according to the book of Ephesians. And the result is, is that your gift now needs to be used. Or listen, the body of Christ suffers. So in our survey that we did on Vision Sunday, we found out that 91% of our people feel like they're growing spiritually. And that's awesome. We found out that 66% of our people are involved in a small group or some kind of community. And that's great. And we also discovered that 60% of our people are using their gifts in some capacity. And I'm not usually a half-glass-empty kind of guy, but my heart today is for the 40% of you that in some way aren't using your gift. And whether it's here at our church or somewhere else, listen to me, the body of Christ needs your gift. And part of what it means to be the church is for you to discover how am I gifted and how can God use me. In fact, when you go to pick your kids up today, you notice there's some, some tables out with some food and things of that sort. That is for our children's ministry workers, and they all have a sticker like this on them. On their lapel, tells them that they're a next generation volunteer. 240 people every Sunday volunteer in order to make sure that church works here for your kids. And when you find them with one of these stickers on, go mug them in Jesus' name. Okay? Get get them. Hug them and say, I'm so glad what you do. Thank you for using your gifts. Because without them using their gifts, you would not be able to be in here or be a part of everything that's going on in this body today. So the thing is, is that our gifts that God has given us, the the beautiful reality of, of Jesus empowering us to be able to use our gifts is the essence of what ministry is supposed to be. So it involves the Word, it involves compassion, it involves prayer, it involves gifts. Without the Word, there's no authority. Without compassion, our words aren't credible. Without prayer, we have no power. And without our gifts being used, the church is just a shell of everything of what she could be. So here's the deal. What would Jesus do is not just a question that we need to ask ourselves personally, but it's also a question we need to ask our entire church family as a whole. Because this is not our thing. It's His. He's the great shepherd. It's His body. It's His bride. It's His thing. And therefore, as a result, we have to ask ourselves, God, are we committed to the things that You're committed to? To the Word? To compassion to prayer and gifts because these are the things that jesus said this is the stuff that makes ministry happen this is the thing i want to be in your lives disciples as you go because without this the church is just a shell ministry is just a game and there's no power but if these things are in the context of the body of christ then jesus is exalted in all new ways and god receives much glory and i don't know about you but that's the kind of church i want to be a part of much glory much power. Father, we pray that um, you would give us today the strength in the next few days to communicate with holy boldness the treasure that we have in you. Lord, I pray that there'd be a new level of giftedness rising from this body, a new urgency in our praying, personally and corporately, a new level of love and compassion, a new desire to study, to know Your Word. So God, I pray that You'd let Your vision of ministry influence the very fabric of our body. Lord, make us in love with Your Word in new ways. Put it like a fire within our hearts. Let us love Your Word with a resolve and a gratitude. And then, Lord, let our lives line up to the beauty of what you call us to in that authoritative word. So Lord Jesus, receive glory, we pray, from College Park Church. Manifest your presence among us for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.